Welcome to Conference Coverage, presented by ReachMD on XM Radio and powered by Health Day. Featuring the latest research findings presented at the American Diabetes Association's 71st Scientific Sessions, held from June 24th to the 28th in San Diego. I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz. And I'm Sue Berg. The American Diabetes Association's conference attracted more than 14,000 participants from around the world and highlighted the latest advances in diabetes research and improving patient care. Eight studies of therapies for type 1 diabetes were presented at various stages of clinical development at the ADA's scientific meetings. One trial monitoring the efficacy of anti-CD3 medications was the DEFEND study, short for Durable Response Therapy Evaluation for Early or New-Onset Type 1 Diabetes. Dr. Peter Gottlieb and colleagues from the University of Colorado in Denver evaluated effects of the monoclonal antibody otolixizumab on newly diagnosed type 1 diabetes patients between 12 and 44 years of age. They found that otolixizumab, at a lower dose than used previously, was safe and well-tolerated, but was not effective at preserving C-peptide at 12 months as compared with control patients. Gottlieb said the dose chosen for this trial was too low, and subsequent trials will test higher doses in light of results from other anti-CD3 trials. Another study following anti-CD3 medications was the ABATE trial, short for Autoimmunity-Blocking Antibody for Tolerance in Recently Diagnosed Type 1 Diabetes. Dr. Kevin Harold and colleagues from Northwestern University in Chicago found that two courses of the monoclonal antibody teplizumab resulted in improved provoked C-peptide responses two years after diagnosis in patients with new-onset type 1 diabetes. The investigators evaluated whether giving a second course of teplizumab intravenously a year after the drug was first administered would prolong its efficacy. They found that when given at the onset of diabetes, teplizumab preserves insulin production at two years. However, the benefit of the second course of teplizumab was not clear. Harold stated that insulin use was significantly less in the drug-treated subjects and that a smaller proportion of subjects from this group lost detectable insulin production. The drug was also well-tolerated. Another clinical study of teplizumab in type 1 diabetes was the Protogé study, a phase 3 double-blind placebo-controlled multinational trial. Dr. Nicole Sherry and colleagues from the Massachusetts General Hospital for Children in Boston found that teplizumab did not reach the combined goal of reducing hemoglobin A1c to less than 6.5% and lowering the amount of insulin needed to fewer than 0.5 units per kilogram per day for newly diagnosed type 1 diabetes patients. However, the investigators found that 5% of participants who received teplizumab no longer needed insulin at the end of one year, compared to none of those who received placebo. They also found that 40% of those who received a 14-day regimen of teplizumab experienced preservation of or increase in C-peptide levels, compared to 28% of the placebo group. The findings from the Protogé trial indicate that this treatment approach, overall, seems to be successful in preserving insulin production. However, investigators add it's likely that some additional treatment will be needed to avert the eventual decline in insulin production. They believe future studies are likely to involve combinations of agents to further modulate disease progression. In other news, lifestyle intervention and metformin treatment for individuals at high risk of developing type 2 diabetes may improve quality of life and be cost-effective. That's according to results from the Diabetes Prevention Program Outcomes Study. The Diabetes Prevention Program, or DPP for short, randomized overweight adults with impaired glucose tolerance and an elevated fasting glucose to intensive lifestyle, 
metformin, or placebo for an average of three years. The DPP outcome study then followed participants for an additional seven years, during which time intensive lifestyle and metformin participants were encouraged to continue those interventions, while all participants were offered a modified lifestyle intervention. A recent analysis demonstrated that the beneficial effects of intensive lifestyle and metformin on the incidence of type 2 diabetes persisted for at least 10 years after randomization. Data on resource utilization, cost, and quality of life were also collected prospectively. Over 10 years, the direct costs of medical care were substantially lower in both the lifestyle and metformin groups compared to the placebo group. Additionally, when the costs of care were combined with the measures of health and quality of life, both interventions were found to be highly cost-effective. The investigators say, based on these findings, that health policy and social policy should support the funding of intensive lifestyle and metformin for diabetes prevention in high-risk adults. A beta-sept co-stimulation modulation slows the reduction of beta-cell function in patients with recent-onset type 1 diabetes, according to a study published online June 28 in The Lancet to coincide with its presentation at the ADA's scientific sessions. Dr. DeHamer Orban and colleagues of the Jocelyn Diabetes Center in Boston investigated the effect of abetacept on beta cell function in patients 6 to 45 years of age with recent onset type 1 diabetes. Of the 112 patients included in this study, 77 received abetacept and 35 received a placebo. Treatments were given via infusion on days 1, 14, 28, and then monthly for a total of 27 infusions over two years. The main outcome measured at two-year follow-up was baseline-adjusted two-hour area under the curve, or AUC, of serum C-peptide concentration following a mixed-meal tolerance test. The investigators found that, after two years, a beta-sept treatment was associated with a significantly higher adjusted C-peptide AUC compared to the placebo group. There was an estimated delay in C-peptide reduction of 9.6 months in patients treated with a beta-sept. Few infusion-related adverse events were reported for patients treated with abetacept or placebo, and the incidence of infections and neutropenia were similar in both groups. The authors write that co-stimulation modulation with abetacept slowed reduction in beta cell function over two years. This beneficial effect suggests that T-cell activation still occurs around the time of clinical diagnosis of type 1 diabetes. Vaccination with glutamic acid decarboxylase formulated with aluminum hydroxide called gadolum failed to prevent C-peptide decline in recent-onset type 1 diabetes. That's according to a study published online in The Lancet to coincide with a scientific meeting. Dr. Diane Warrett and colleagues from the University of Toronto investigated whether immunization with gadolum would preserve insulin production in 145 patients aged 3 to 45 years old with type 1 diabetes of less than 100 days onset. The patients received gadolum, gadolum plus aluminum hydroxide, or aluminum hydroxide alone. Subcutaneous injections were given at baseline at 4 weeks and 8 weeks later. Investigators concluded that administration of gadolum did not arrest C-peptide decline in patients with recent-onset type 1 diabetes. Women with type 1 diabetes may have increased risk factors for cardiovascular disease as early as adolescence, according to a new study. Talia Brown and colleagues from the University of Colorado in Denver investigated the gender differences in risk factors of cardiovascular disease among adolescents with type 1 diabetes. The study group of 152 boys and 150 girls averaged 15 years of age. 
hemoglobin A1c, low-density lipoprotein cholesterol, systolic blood pressure, body mass index, and C-reactive protein were the risk markers examined. The investigators found that girls with type 1 diabetes had higher cardiovascular disease risk factors adjusted for all ages and tanner stages of puberty compared to girls who did not have diabetes. This remained significant even after adjusting for BMI. Conversely, risk factors for cardiovascular disease were similar for boys with or without type 1 diabetes. The authors say that, based on these results, adolescence may be a critical period for cardiovascular disease prevention in girls with type 1 diabetes. In patients with type 2 diabetes, intensive dietary intervention introduced soon after diagnosis improves glycemic control, but increased activity appears to confer no additional benefit. That's according to a study by Dr. Rob Andrews and colleagues from the University of Bristol in the United Kingdom. The study analyzed impacts of diet and physical activity on blood pressure and glucose concentrations in adults diagnosed with type 2 diabetes 5 to 8 months earlier. 99 adults aged 30 to 80 were assigned to usual care, including initial dietary consultation and follow-up every six months. 248 were assigned to an intensive diet intervention with dietary consultation every three months and monthly nurse support. And 246 received the same diet intervention plus pedometer-based activity. Improvements in hemoglobin A1C concentration and blood pressure at six months were the main outcomes studied. The investigators found that glycemic control worsened in the usual care group at six months, but was significantly improved in the diet and diet plus activity groups. Even with less use of diabetes drugs, these findings were sustained for 12 months. Body weight and insulin resistance improved more in the intervention groups than the control group, but there was no difference in blood pressure between the groups. The authors wrote that an intensive diet intervention soon after diagnosis can improve glycemic control, but the addition of an activity intervention conferred no additional benefit. There has been a global increase in the prevalence of diabetes, correlating with a global increase in age-standardized mean fasting plasma glucose, or FPG, according to a review published online in The Lancet. Investigators from the Harvard School of Public Health in Boston reviewed available health examination surveys and epidemiological studies to investigate trends in mean fasting plasma glucose and diabetes prevalence in adults ages 25 years and older from 199 countries and territories. Mean FPG by age, country, and year were estimated for each gender. The investigators found that the number of diabetes cases increased from 153 million in 1980 to 347 million in 2008. The global age standardized mean FPG was 5.5 millimoles per liter for men and 5.42 millimoles per liter for women in 2008, having increased by 0.07 millimoles per liter and 0.09 millimoles per liter per decade, respectively. From 1980 to 2008, the age standardized diabetes prevalence increased from 8.3 to 9.8% in men and from 7.5 to 9.2% in women. The mean rise in FPG and diabetes prevalence were highest in Oceania. Conversely, there was almost no change seen in the mean FPG in East and Southeast Asia and Central and Eastern Europe. In high-income subregions, the highest rise in mean FPG was in North America, while the lowest rise was in Western Europe. The authors conclude that glycemia and diabetes are rising globally, driven both by population growth and aging and by increased age-specific prevalences. 
Life expectancy of people diagnosed with type 1 diabetes dramatically increased during the course of a 30-year long-term prospective study from the University of Pittsburgh. The results are based on the Pittsburgh Epidemiology of Diabetes Complications Study, a long-term prospective trial of childhood onset type 1 diabetes, which began in 1986. Participants who were an average age of 28 when entering the study and 44 at its completion were diagnosed with type 1 diabetes between 1950 and 1980. The life expectancy for participants diagnosed with type 1 diabetes between 1965 and 1980 was 68.8 years, a 15-year improvement compared to those diagnosed between 1950 and 1964. Meanwhile, the life expectancy of the general U.S. population increased less than one year during the same time period. Lead author Dr. Trevor Orchard said the estimated 15-year life expectancy improvement between the two groups persisted regardless of gender or pubertal status at diagnosis. The 30-year mortality of participants diagnosed with type 1 diabetes from 1965 to 1980 was 11.6%, a significant decline from the 35.6% 30-year mortality of those diagnosed between 1950 and 1964. A low-fat, high-protein diet and a low-fat, high-carbohydrate diet may be equally effective for long-term weight loss in patients with type 2 diabetes. Dr. Jeremy Krebs and colleagues from Wellington Hospital in New Zealand compared the effects of a high-protein diet to that of a high-carbohydrate diet over a two-year period in 294 overweight adults with type 2 diabetes ages 35 to 75 years. Over six months, individuals attended a dietitian led twice-weekly group-based program, then monthly for a further six months. Primary outcomes of weight and waist circumference were evaluated at baseline and at 6, 12, and 24 months. Secondary outcomes measured were hemoglobin A1c, blood pressure, lipid profile, dietary adherence, and renal function. The investigators found that both groups reported a decrease in energy intake with a significantly lower intake for the high-carbohydrate cohort. Both groups experienced similar weight loss, reduced waist circumference, and reduced hemoglobin A1c. Blood pressure and proteinuria were also comparable between the two groups. And while the pattern of change in lipid profiles differed initially, the final 24-month results were similar for both groups. The authors wrote that dietary interventions promoting energy reduction through low-fat with either increased protein or carbohydrate, resulted in similar modest weight and waist circumference loss, largely sustained over two years. This conference coverage from the American Diabetes Association's 71st Scientific Sessions, held from June 24 to 28 in San Diego, has been a presentation of ReachMD on XM Satellite Radio, on medical radio smartphone apps, and via download at ReachMD.com, and powered by HealthDay.